Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Um, I want to welcome everyone here, especially if you're a first time here. We're going to be taking communion here in this gathering. And uh, when you receive it, just so you're aware, um, the bread is, uh, so you'll pull one cup out, and there's the bread on the bottom and uh, the wine on the top. And our communion is an open communion. You don't have to be a member here. You do need to be a follower of Christ. So if you've not made that commitment and you're exploring things, that's fine. Just let it pass you on by. Um, but if you're a follower of Christ, whether you're a member here or not, uh, we welcome you to join us. We just would ask that you take hold of it and keep it until we all will take of it together, and that'll be at the ending here of the service. Um, before we continue on into our conversation today, um, missed the opportunity uh, at our homecoming gathering a couple weeks back um, uh, to introduce uh, Osborne's new principal. We've been involved in Osborne, the community, but also particularly in the high school for going on five years now or so, and I know a number of you had a tremendous amount of impact there and engagement, whether that's been the robotics or a variety of other things there, and uh, um, of course, Erica Beal, our director of that, and so present here with us today is Dr. Jamita Lewis, and she's the principal, and then also a Mr. Bryant Tipton is the assistant who I have not met, but Mr. Bryant's good to have you. Could you please stand, please? Dr. Lewis and Bryant Tipton. Thank you. We appreciate you so much being here with us today and taking time just to be with her and be a part of things. And Dr. Lewis, this is your second time around. And Dr. Lewis, you spell your name L-E-W-I-S, I believe. That's, that's what I've understood it to be. That's particularly important because my favorite guy is C.S. Lewis, and I'm sure you guys are related somewhere down the line, okay? <laughs> so um, we have been in a study entitled The Challenge of a Christian Worldview. And the challenge of a Christian worldview is on two levels. One is it's a very personal statement to everyone in this room every time we gather. Um, do you have a Christian worldview? And so the challenge is, what do you believe? But it's also a challenge because if you have a biblical worldview, then you will be challenged increasingly in our culture and what surrounds us here today. Today I want to talk to you particularly, and I said last week that this would be like the crux core of everything, and in many ways it is. It is, what is your view of God? What is your view of God? Now before we get into that, I had mentioned last week, um, and we won't delve too long into this, some of the variations that are out there, some things that are not so accurate or correct. Um, one of those is, in fact, uh, something called moralistic, um, theistic, or rather therapeutic deism. So moralistic therapeutic deism is probably the prevalent issue that's operating in Christian churches today, and it's an aberration of the faith. Um, this was initially coined by a guy named Christian Smith, as I said last week, who is a sociologist, uh, who always studies the trends in religion. He's out of Notre Dame. And so they define it this way, moralistic, because it's about inculcating a moralistic approach to life. 
It teaches that central to living a good and happy life is providing therapeutic benefits to its adherent as opposed to, as opposed to about being about things like repentance from sin, um, keeping the Sabbath, living as a servant of a sovereign divine God, um, being involved with prayer or faithfully observing uh, various things, building character through suffering. And further, quote, as belief in a particular kind of God, one who exists, created the world, and defines our general moral order, but not one who is particularly personally involved in one's affairs, especially affairs in which one would prefer not to have God involved. And so this is the term. And he said the remoteness of God in this kind of theism explains the choice of the term deism. Even though the deism here is revised from his classical 18th century version by the therapeutic qualifier, making the distant God selectively available. So Deus would say God's distant but not involved. In this case, it's making the distant God selectively available for taking care of our needs, hence the term therapeutic. It views God as, quote, something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. And the author of this work said a significant part of Christianity in the United States is actually only tenuously Christian in any sense that is seriously connected to the actual historical Christian tradition, but is rather substantially morphed into Christians or Christianity's misbegotten step-cousin, Christian moralistic therapeutic deism. Also a reference group uh, that operates out of the word of faith or prosperity doctrine, the idea that once Christ died that that um, God wants you to be wealthy and wise and wonderful and everything else like that, which kind of goes against what happened to all the apostles and Jesus and everything else. One of the main speakers of this is a speaker called Creflo Dollar, which is an unfortunate name. I think if you're a pastor, you shouldn't go to the ministry if your name's Dollar. Um, but at one point in time, he's speaking to his congregation, thousands of people, because this system of belief is one of the most popular in this country. But popular Christianity often is not biblical. In fact, usually isn't. And biblical Christianity is generally not popular. At one point in time, he's talking to the congregation. He says, if horses get together, they produce what? And everyone shouts out, horses. If dogs get together, they produce what? And everyone shouts out, dogs. If cats get together, they produce what? I'd have an answer to that, but generally people would say cats. Okay? <laughs> and then he goes on to say, if the Godhead says, let us make man in our image, and everything produces after its own kind, then they produce what? And everyone shouts out, God's. And Dollar goes on to say, God's, little g, God's, you're not human, only part of you in this flesh is wearing. He takes what is a truth statement about the divine nature of mankind that we're made in the image of God, but changes and makes that into the idea that we have control and verbal control over our own thing, that we're creative, that we're God's in our own right. These are some of the things that are out there. And as he said, as I said before, we need to be gracious in regards to these things. Don't focus on the counterfeit. But I want to bring those up to highlight the positive or the, the, the true statements. And then be careful that we don't get into um, cynicism as we go forward. We began this conversation because the studies are showing that 51%, as I said, of this, of this country have a Christian um, or claim to be Christian. But only 6% of those have a biblical worldview. Uh, one of my math friends from last week uh, wrote down something and, and reminded me of the fact that that means that only 3%, a little more than 3% of the nation have a biblical world view that hold to things, even though we're claiming to be Christians, that are holding to things that are actually um, scriptural in the core of it. Um, A.W. Tozer made the statement, what comes to our minds when we think about God 
is the most important thing about us. And so that's why my statement is, what is your view of God? What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. How can he say something like that? Why would he say something like that? It's because our vision, our understanding about God influences everything else that we view around us. Our world, our neighbors, our future, our past, everything relates to our understanding and our view of God. Is he this, this horrible guy who throws lightning bolts? A friend of mine wrote a poem recently and, and says that we are shaped by what and in whom we believe. Who is God to you? An old man in the sky who throws his lightning bolts and never tells you why. Is he an ugly brute who judges needlessly? A slave driver to boot without whom we'd be free? Or someone out to lunch, aloof and never nigh, and so couldn't care less or whether we live or die. Or one who claps for us, approving every song, accepting all our acts as though we do no wrong. Or uses cosmic scales and weighs our deeds above to judge if we gain heaven and have never done enough. Or we to be the source where truth and justice spring and blend with perfect love. Is this his quality? Now God is who he is despite this exercise. So you may think this futile, a senseless waste of time. But character will build on that which we assume. So the question is, who is God to you? And that is a question I would pose you today. We began this whole conversation by examining the scripture in Matthew chapter 28 where Jesus is speaking to his apostles and he's sitting here and saying to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. He specifically says disciples, not just converts, not just people who um, recognize that Jesus is who he is, demons do that, but that recognize that Jesus is who he is, accept his sacrifice on the cross, and that that change of mind actually results in a change of life a change of how we do life, of how we think, how we operate. And so he says, go and make disciples of all nations, all ethnicities, all backgrounds. There are no national boundaries. There are no ethnic boundaries to the faith. And if our first identity is rooted in that, that's a problematic, whether it's American or French or Chinese or even Canadian, okay? Whatever it is, our first identity is to be in Christ, he goes on baptizing them in name, and here's where it gets interesting, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and showing with you always to the very end of the age. Why is that interesting? Because he's talking about God now in three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus, and he's referencing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, why is this so incredibly freaky? Because in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, you have a passage of Scripture that would have been read at every uh, a significant worship gathering where Jews would gather. See, they were surrounded by polytheistic belief. They were surrounded by many God concepts. They were surrounded by all these false things and also the idea that God could be in the plants and the animals and, and they worshiped the trees and all sorts of things. And one of the toughest things for Israel to learn was that God was singular, that God alone, that there was only God, period, that all these other things were false. There is no other God, just God. And he's one. And so they'd begin this with what is referred to as the Shema Israel, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The first thing you need to understand about God is that he is one. There is a singularness to this. It goes on and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. There's something about God alone that is singular in nature. So where's Jesus get off talking about this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And, and this looks like a, a, a mix of something here. And this, this passage and others like it that refer to something called the Trinity or this view of God as the Trinity has been perplexing people forever. And people try to put it into different boxes. 
Jehovah Witness will, will have literally rewritten their own Bible. And in that, um, Jesus is a created being. He's not God. He's a created being. So they try to resolve it that way. Uh, Mormons go the other way. They sit here and say, all, there, there's three gods. We actually have three gods, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're all three. Incidentally, go far enough, you find out that Jesus and Lucifer are brothers. Different discussion we won't get into now. And that the God of this earth was someone just like us who then ascended and became a God and we're all the spiritual children descended by unending sex in heaven and where this comes from. And so their view of God is very different. And the, the Islamic view of God is also very different. We'll discuss that in a little bit of time as well too. What your view of God is is important, but the Jews were raised with a hardcore view of monotheism, of the idea that, that God is one. And yet Jesus says this. In fact, this is not the first time he's wandered into this territory. In John chapter 10, verses 30 through 31, he's speaking to the people, and, and, and at one point in time he says, I and the Father are one. He makes a co-equality statement with God, and they knew what he was talking about. They picked up on it because it says that they picked up stones to stone him for blaspheme. You can't say that you're co-equal with God. God's only one, and you're making this crazy kind of statement here. concept of the Trinity. Now, before we get too far into this, let's deal with some preliminaries. First of all, you may know or understand that the word Trinity is not going to be found anywhere in Scripture. You're also not going to find the word incarnation anywhere in Scripture, which we use all the time to capture the concept of, of Jesus coming in the flesh or God in the flesh. You're also not going to find the word communion in the Scripture, which we use to reference what we're doing here, but it captures the idea of the covenant, what it means to come together in this way. And so in the same way, Trinity is a, a quick, easy way, a shorthand way of describing a concept about God that's found all over the Bible. In fact, Roger Olson puts it this way. He says, whatever is true, or while it's true that no single passage of Scripture spells out the doctrine of the Trinity, it's also true that the whole of Scripture's witness to who God is and who Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are, all these texts makes no sense at all without the model of the Trinity. And that all alternative concepts end up doing violence to some essential aspect of what Scripture reveals to Christian experience and possibly even reason itself. So this term Trinity is something that we find all throughout Scripture. In fact, we're not going to go this far, but there are a few Scriptures that reference it. <laughs> and um, we're going to start at the beginning and go through the end of this. Nobody had plans for lunch, I hope. Um, and then we'll try the different translations. And you might notice also that these are all New Testament. There's actually a ton of Old Testament items that, that have to be aligned, and the only way that all these little ciphers and everything else, all, all these little, think of it as a, as a, as a thousand combination of numbers, they all line up to, to, to open the lock, is with the concept of Trinity. Billy Graham said, God the Father is fully God. God the Son is fully God. God the Holy Spirit is fully God. The Bible presents this as fact. It does not explain it. <laughs> Oxford theologian Alistair McGrath said, the doctrine of the Trinity was not invented, it was uncovered. The doctrine of the Trinity is not some arbitrary, outdated dictate handed down by some confused council from centuries past, I might add. It is the inevitable result of wrestling with the richness and complexity of the Christian experience of God. Dr. Lewis's long-lost relative, C.S. Lewis, made the statement one time, if Christianity were something we were making up, of course we would make it easier. But it is not. We cannot compete in simplicity with people who are inventing religions. 
Tons of people have struggled with this and haven't been able to grasp it, and so they make up simpler, but often, in fact, generally heretical concepts, and we grasp and take hold of those because it makes sense to us. It lines up, but there's a reason why some of these things can't be grasped. He says, how could we? We're dealing with fact. Of course, anyone can be simple if he doesn't have any facts if, uh, to bother about. When we consider that, that the early disciples, the early church up until Antioch was almost exclusively, with some rare exceptions, Jewish, who had been pounded in forever the idea of the monotheism of God and the oneness, which is true. This does not deny that. Then we have Daryl Johnson experiencing the says, when we consider that those who could not help worshiping Jesus were Jews, strict monotheists, whose foundational creed was, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one, we have to ask one very important question. What were they doing worshiping Jesus and confessing him as Lord? There's something profound, and yet at the same time, I would argue, profoundly difficult in trying to grasp and take hold of the Trinity. What is your view of God? How do we understand and what do we understand him to be? One of the things I think to me that has been a significant issue that maybe if you get nothing else out of this conversation that I would offer this, and for me has been one of the most powerful things as, as, as a person of education and travel and, and intellectual, whatever else this case is this. A God understood, a God comprehended is no God. A God who we can understand, who we can comprehend is one that we have created but one who has revealed himself and yet there's still something that is impenetrable that speaks to me of God. We have recently uh, acquired, uh, I've been told, a grandchild. No, nothing untoward has happened. But we have this golden retriever, that, this little puppy that's coming to the house <laughs> that my son has acquired. Beautiful dog, gorgeous dog, bright dog, clever, too clever, <laughs> way too clever. Um, but just fantastic little creature, and I, it's amazing because he picks up on, on eyes. And so if I step into an area that he's at and I don't make eye contact, he'll stay chill. But the moment I make contact, he's like, ah, you want to play, right? <laughs> and I end up coming in with all these little yellow hairs all over me, okay? He's a very bright dog, very clever, probably the brightest dog I've ever encountered. Way brighter than most cats, but that's another issue. <laughs> I'm dealing with my prejudices, just so you guys know. Right? Cats are my one. But I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> but here's the thing. As bright as this dog is, whatever I would true, I could even enter its world and maybe be a dog to it and engage in some doggy fashion with it. I could try to explain myself and my world and my relationships, and there's no way on the planet that, that dog will still comprehend the intricacies of the human relationships and of who I am as an individual. They'll grasp some things perhaps if I come as a dog and speak in dog language. And in the same way, as God has come to us in the flesh in Christ, there are some aspects revelatory that we can grasp, but there are other aspects that we never will. And that to me speaks of a God that is true and exists. As we go into the scripture and we look even further into these things, 
We find that at one point in time, Jesus um, delves into, in, in the last, he's got four chapters, the 14th of the, of the book of John, the 15th, the 16th, and the 17th. And, and this is a critical passage for a very important reason that I want to show you at the back end. But in the 14th chapter, in the 8th verse, he's, he's talking with the guys. They're hanging out over a meal. And, and it's, it's, it's this important time, but it's a meal time. And Philip rises up. He says, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Just, just reveal God to us. Jesus says, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Sometimes we always think, I think that Jesus would just like, like, and I think sometimes he's a little annoyed. So like, why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? We've been all this time together. The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me, does this work through me. Just believe that I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. Or at least can't grasp that. Believe because of the work you've seen me do. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I've done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name and I'll do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name, I'll do it. If you love me, obey my commandments. And I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because they're not looking for him. doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. And so in this passage here, he's introducing again the whole concept of Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's interesting the way he's speaking here. He's not saying, I am the Father, in the sense that, that I'm playing that. He says that we're together. There's something of, a, of unity that's still a separation of some type. Another interesting element, keep that in your brain there for a moment, is the beginning of the Old Testament begins with, in the beginning. And that talks about what God's doing. And there's a reference to the Spirit there and a few other things. We won't go into the Old Testament stuff. Do you know what the New Testament begins with in the book of John? Same phrase, in the beginning. Only this time it references Jesus as the Word, as someone who is with God from the beginning, from all eternity, that things were created through him. There's this whole blending of things. There are a lot of aberrant thoughts out there. But whether it's Catholicism, whether it's Orthodoxy, whether it's Protestantism, all of them are going to adhere to this same concept of a Trinitarian view of God. That there's something about this three-in-one mixture now, some can't get a grasp on it, and so there are some groups that want to sit here, and all they can go is they try to reconcile the oneness issue by saying, okay, God kind of plays different roles. So he was one moment the Father, then he's Jesus, and then he's the Son. And they want to say it, and it's a term, it's an ancient heresy called modalism. He's in different modes. But if you read like the passage we just read in other ones, it makes no sense. He's referring to the Father as someone who he's in, but also who he's going to refer to or talking to. And the same thing in the Spirit. You see this all the way through Scripture. And so the concept of modalism, or as in one, some groups refer to it as oneness, and it's very tricky because you're using the same language and the same things, but it's not the same view of God. That doesn't mean you rise up, scream heretic, and cut someone's head off. We're to be gracious. We're to stay focused on that which is correct, and we're to avoid cynicism. But you need to guard yourself in regards to that. The Scripture doesn't say that Jesus is the Father of the Spirit, but that He's one with the Father and the Spirit. There's been many attempts to try to explain 
Um, this type of oneness, this type of, of coming together in different ways. Um, one of those was uh, um, St. Patrick. You know, he, he had the famous shamrock. And it's a cool idea, but it doesn't quite work because there's separate elements to it. Um, others would try to use like water. You know, it's vapor and it's, and it's solid and then it's liquid. And, and that's, but that's modalism again. It's changing into different things. Somehow we have these three distinct people not forces or things. That's three distinct people that are at the same time in a unity and a oneness that we cannot even begin to comprehend. An ancient church father, uh, Tertullian, tried to reference it this way. Not a bad shot, but still incomplete. Is an image of the Trinity is kind of as a plant again, with the Father as a deep root and the Son as a shoot that breaks forth into the world, and the Spirit is that which spreads beauty and fragrance around, like a rose would be going or so. And again, not a bad shot. But again, it's not going to be complete. St. Augustine had just finished, actually, a um, book entitled On the Trinity. And allegedly, he was walking along the ocean, the Mediterranean Sea at one point, and on the shore of North Africa, and he goes upon this little boy who is in the process of filling a bucket with seawater and pouring it into this large hole in the sand that he had a little ways up the beach. And um, Augustine asks the little boy, he says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm pouring the Mediterranean Sea into the hole, the kid says, with all seriousness. You know, kids could get. He says, my dear boy, what an impossible thing to try to do, Augustine says. The sea is far too vast and your hole is far too small. And then he continued on his walk and the little kid continued to do what he's going to do because kids ignore us all the time. <laughs> and as he's going along and thinking of the book he just wrote on the Trinity, he's realizing how ridiculous his effort was. He realized in the same way as this little boy that the ocean, the concept of God is too vast to fit into the tiny hole of our reasoning and of our thinking. That does not mean, though, that there are not serious implications to the concept of what it means for holding Trinity and this belief. Now, before we go to that, let me, let me say one other thing. Another big error to make in regards to God is going to be the same error that we can make with an individual that we pick one aspect of their character and we explode that aspect to fill our entire vision or expand that concept. That is a bitter, dangerous mistake with anyone, but particularly with God. If we go into the book of Isaiah, we find this image of God that Isaiah has. And, and, and there's these angels just twirling all about, dancing all around, and they're saying the same thing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This emphasizes several things. One is the holiness of God, that, that his righteousness, his purity, his goodness is so fantastic that when the Jews want to say something or Jesus or anyone want to say something, they'd mention it once. You really want to say, listen up twice. It's just like, shut up and listen. It's three times. And so in essence, the scripture is saying to us, shut up and listen. Holy, not just holy, 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 not just holy, 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 holy is the Lord God. If there's one thing you get about God, he's Holy. He's righteous, he's pure, he's utterly just. And nothing we do or try to do can in any way allow us to enter into his presence because that holiness would kill us in a second. And so these angels are turning about, not just saying holy, holy to emphasize the holiness, but there's an argument that it's being made that they're saying at the same time in a subtext, holy is the Father, holy is the Son, holy is the Spirit. There's a Trinitarian statement at the same time. So we have this riveting aspect of God's nature as utterly holy. 
But then if we want to go into the scripture a little bit further, we find in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, whoever does not love God does not know God because why? Okay, let's try that at one time again because some of you were, were just kind of spacing out and I caught you off guard. And I, I, I know the lines aren't playing, I don't think, today. Are, they'll be later, so don't worry about it, okay? Probably lose anyway. Um, I know, I'm a little faith, but after 3-0, and o guys, I'm sorry, I think it's 4-0. and o. Anyways, whoever does not love God does not know God because... Okay, so wow, we know that God is love. So now we got a problem. Because what? Holy, holy, holy. But God is love. Okay, now we have a real issue. If you just focus on the holy, holy, holy part, as some traditions do, and even when I grew up a lot of time, it, it's just you're, you're utterly always broken in the sense that you're never going to rise up and be enough that, and it's just he's holy, just, he's going to destroy us. We're constantly broken and shattered. But if you swing this other direction, like the hyper-grace movement of today, love, 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 forget about this holiness stuff, then you got a problem, though, because that holiness still exists. And so we have to reconcile somehow those two. So is God primarily love or primarily holy? Yes. Oh, that messes us up. Okay? He's both. Whenever you separate that off, you end up with a problem with a misunderstanding of who God is, you could have the same problem with a human being. Talk to, talk to my family. They will tell you that, that I am the most loving human being that ever existed. <laughs> they will. They will tell you how loving and how gracious and how kind I am. And if the conversation stops there, I will be happy. <laughs> but it won't, because they're also going to talk about, you know, for me, moments of anger. Moments where I'm holding a certain line and I'm detailed. And if you listen to one side and don't get the other side, you're going to have a problem because you're going to bump across that in the same way with God who is beyond any of us as human beings. He's holy, but he's also loving. And it also says that whoever doesn't love doesn't know God. See, one of the radical differences between our understanding and view of God and that of, say, Islam, for example, and this is not meant to defame anything, but we get confused, oh, it's all the same God. It's not, and there are implications. And here's one of those implications. Allah is said to be loving, but Allah stands alone. The mere thought that there be an incarnation is very offensive to a Muslim. The idea that God would become flesh is completely blasphemed to them. God is one, and he stands alone throughout all of eternity. But we're sitting here saying, no, God is made of three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who have been together throughout all eternity. Allah's love. No, he's not. How can you say that? Because love demands an object. I have to have something. There's no love if there's no one for me to love. And if I've been alone through all this time, there is none. And some people misunderstand Christianity and say, well, well, God's been alone for all this time. And, and what he did is he made us because he was so lonely and he wanted someone to love. So Jesus, and God's just so lonely, why don't you just accept him and, and, and take pity on the poor old guy? And that's also a misunderstanding of it because God has not been alone throughout all time because the Father has always loved the Son. The Son has always loved the Spirit. The Spirit has always loved the party, Father. They have always had this ongoing party for all of eternity, this incredible love fest, this incredible worship and glorifying of one another throughout all eternity. There's always been love. God has always been love. He encompasses it for all eternity. Allah is not. Are they the same? They are not. 
And there are implications for it. Because if God is love, if there is a trinity, if then we know it's existed for all eternity. We know that that love fest, that fellowship, is something that's inviting us to be a part of it when we accept Christ. That the whole purpose of it was to come and to rescue us and draw us into that fellowship. This doesn't mean that we can't be gracious, but it does mean that we should not be confused about certain things. This is not an apologetics discussion. I'm not trying to convince you by logical means or going over serious proofs or we spend all those scriptures and all this time we'll be here until next week. I'm outlining for you what is a biblical worldview. And you have to begin with what is your view of God? And oneness doesn't cut it. Multiple gods does not fulfill it. But a concept, an examination of Scripture that is complete, that takes in both his love and his holiness, that integrates those two things together and says that this is our God, that says that there has always been God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, that has lived for all of eternity in fellowship with one another. That there's been this element that is key to the very definition and nature and character of who God is. Goes way beyond the idea of the frothy statement that can say, well, Randy is love, or, or Fred is love, or Allah is love. But we're not. In this case, though, it's not just that he loves. It's that he is love and has been. And it's interwoven in his very nature. And he invites us to be a part of it. This is the whole aspect of what Jesus is talking about in this chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17. And why this is so critical for you to understand, even today particularly. Because what he's talking about when he's, when he's doing in these four chapters, and, he's, and, and the concept of the Trinity is, is, is rife all throughout it. There's one passage where he's saying, I pray the Father, I pray that everyone would be one in the same way that we're one, that they'd be so unified and so much loving one another in the same way that you and I and the Spirit have been for eternity. I want this for everybody who's heard my words, he says. This thing he's talking about is what we now call the Last Supper. So he's gathering all his disciples together And he goes off on this four-chapter discourse that is scattered with statements to the Father and the Spirit. In the 17th chapter, he starts to wrap it up, 24th verse. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and see my glory. Not to glorify my, but but to, to take joy and delight in that. Then catch this, the glory you have given me. Earlier he said co-equal with God. He's not playing modalism here. He's not speaking to himself. He's saying the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Because we've always loved each other. We've always celebrated each other. We've always had this. And then he goes on, he says, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. We know each other for eternity. They know that you've sent me and I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. And those are the last words he says. Mic drop. Let's go out to the garden and uh, and get me executed, okay? That's the last thing he says at the Last Supper. What you believe 
and your view of God shapes everything of how you treat other people, of how you understand your relationship with him, of how you understand him to be and who he is. And so this morning, as we take of communion, as we let what flowed out of these things into this gathering here and these last words that Jesus said, I challenge you again, do you have a biblical worldview? I'm not talking to dominations. I'm not talking do you have a biblical worldview? And a biblical worldview of God is that he is one, but that he is three persons distinct within that one, a unity that can't be broken, not three gods, not one distinct alone, but somehow that utter unity, that he is holy beyond belief, but that love is the very makeup of who he is and that he invites us, even as we invite you here now this morning, to take part in this communion, to gather together, to reflect upon what it means of who the character of God is, who sends the Son in the flesh Way back in Genesis, there was a promise made. It wasn't spoken, but it was made all the same. Adam and Eve were in the garden. They failed. They fallen. And with that, the relationship with God, and, and, and it poisons all of us. It's, that's, that's our heritage. There's none righteous, no, not one. They recognize that they're naked, shame, all that stuff comes on them. And God takes pity, and, 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 and he provides covering for that and the covering was the killing of an animal the first death occurs to cover the sin of the man and the woman this was more powerful than it was understood even at the time because when Jesus comes God in the flesh he becomes that covering for us that thing which obscures our shame and our sinfulness that, that when we lay hold of it when we claim it when we wrap that salvation around us that God doesn't see the sin that doesn't permit us to come here or near his holiness, but he sees the work of his one and only son in a mystery we can't even comprehend fully. And in that death, somehow we're redeemed and saved. And so these last words that he offers at the Last Supper, as we take of this communion today, I want you to reflect on what is your view of God, but also realize that That God, in this riotous party that's been going on through all eternity, this glorifying one another and loving of one another and all the praise and all the honor that went on for that time, that all that was going on so great and so wonderful, so overwhelming that, that they wanted to share that, that God decided to share that in some way. And that in our participating, not just in this communion, but in our receiving Christ, in our having that faith that doesn't just acknowledge who he is, but changes who we are and how we act and how we think, that we're then invited to be a part of that. And that's one of the reasons why this is referred to as communion, that we commune with God, that we become joined with him in the same way that Jesus said he wanted us to see that happen in, in these passages in John, but in the same way that we're to fellowship with one another regardless of our way you voted last time or the way you're going to vote next time or what color you are, or what structure you have, or what nationality you have, 
or how bright you are, how stupid you are, how educated you are, how pretty you are, how ugly you are, whatever the case is, it doesn't matter. That for those in Christ, the scripture says that we are a brotherhood and a sisterhood that was supposed to set an example for the world, that we are to come together. That's what this represents. That's what Jesus was saying. The unity we have, the love we have. Come on, guys, we want you to join it. And we'll go to extraordinary lengths to make entryway for you while still satisfying justice, while still satisfying the holiness. That's what you're invited to. So as we take this time, hold it together. But what is your view of God? Do you have a a biblical worldview? If you haven't reached that point, then let this pass you by. It's okay. But if also you want to take this opportunity that the Spirit's nudging you in some fashion, then it's as simple as acknowledging that you're a sinner. There's nothing you can do, no works you can do that can, can appease God's wrath. But that he provided a way through Jesus Christ, totally sinless, God himself on the cross, sacrificed, murdered for all of us. And yet he rose again to show that he was God. That when we accept those things and we also commit to saying that means a change of life, that means a change of who I am. We embrace that, repent and accept that, then you're welcome to join us here. Otherwise, just let it pass you by until there's a time you're ready. Father, we come before you this morning. And while we may never fully comprehend the awesomeness and fullness of who you are, you have revealed different things to us that we can seize hold of. Your holiness your grace, your love, character traits. I pray, Lord, is that we prepare to receive this today, that we remember those last words that you shared on this earth at this time before your death and resurrection, that you'd share those things, that we'd open our minds to those things today in our considerations. Speak to us, I pray, by your Spirit. In Jesus' name. And so that last evening... Jesus gathers with his disciples for um, a meal, a time of fellowship. He goes off on this four-chapter teaching and expression. Then he takes a piece of bread and he breaks it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Don't forget. Don't forget. So, Lord, we come before you this morning as your church. We are a mix of people. We are all human beings. People that you chose to invite into the great love that you have and are. And by the brokenness of your son's body, we have become one and have been restored. So we thank you. And in that name, we pray. Amen. Shall we take together? He takes a cup. He fills it. So this is my blood shed with you. There's no forgiveness for sins. There's no remission of that without death. The gathering is the Passover meal. The ones the Jews had celebrated for centuries where a a lamb, innocent lamb, is slain and its blood was spread over the doorposts in Egypt and the death passes by it and 
not only does death pass them by, but their freedom is found in that moment too and released from captivity. And in the same way, Jesus is invoking all of this in that moment of time when he takes this cup and says, all this was to look forward to me. I am the lamb whose blood was to be spread over the doorposts. I am the one that is your freedom from sin. It's all right here. It's about to unfold before your very eyes. Don't ever forget this. So Lord, we come before you and we celebrate not just the death and sacrifice of Christ, but the resurrection as well that proves the validity of his claims that he was in fact God and is. We celebrate this day and we give you thanks. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Shall we take together? As you go into this week, be gracious. Stay focused on what is true. Don't be deceived. Resist the cynicism that can easily creep in and hold fast to what you believe in regards to God. But make sure it's biblical and not just an opinion or a reflection of your own thoughts and, and hopes. And close again, Psalm 25. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior. My hope is in you all day long, all night long, all during the week, all the time the kids are screaming and yelling at you, all the time that your spouse wants you to do this or that, all the time that your boss abuses you, all the time the students are going crazy and nuts, all the time the administration goes over your head, all the time we deal with all the different things that we deal with. Don't lose sight. Don't give in to cynicism. Stay gracious. Father, I pray that you continue to shape us as your people. I pray, Lord, that we'd walk in humility, not with any arrogance, Lord, not with a need to correct others, but that we would be clear in what we believe, that as we study that, that it would shape not just how we think, but how we act and who we are. We commit these things into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen.